for December 2nd, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 283. God just got a 10-second car. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matt Rather from Los Angeles, here with a panel and special guest. That's right, it's a special guest podcast. So uh, that's that's always exciting. It's nice to uh, to add new blood because I, really, after knowing each other for 15 years, the the main core of overthinkers are so sick of each other and so sick of this this incessant uh, talk about. Pop culture. We're like a family that comes together uh, once a year uh, at some sort of holiday, uh, ostensibly to give thanks, but uh, in fact to remind ourselves why we don't come together at any other times of year uh, <laughs> besides besides that. Um, so oh, I'm, uh, I'm seething with gratitude towards you right now, man. <laughs> seething with gratitude. Absolutely. Um, so uh, uh, we'll get to the show and the question of the week in in just one second. But but first a um, uh, a bit of a sponsor message here because it's it's the holiday shopping time of year. Uh, Black Friday has uh, has passed, and the Fridays are progressively less black as you get uh, as you get to Christmas, or or progressively more black. I was always given to understand that Black Friday referred to being in the black. That is to say, like the the point of uh, in during the year when businesses start to show a profit uh, for all the sales that they've had all, all year. Is that am, am I making that up, or is that the actual? Uh, origin uh, of that that phrase. That's what I've heard, but I also have heard that it's apocryphal, right. and that the actual reason that it's called Black Friday is because retail workers dread it, and there were specific retail workers at a specific uh, retail store who who dreaded it so much that they came to call it Black Friday every year because it was just so awful to have everybody in the store. Um, so I've heard both stories. I've definitely heard both stories. Well, with with uh, Black Friday and the travesty of Gray Thursday, where certain certain retailers opened on uh, on Thanksgiving Day itself, we actually um, <laughs> our, our travesty was still greater than that because the Monday before Thanksgiving, we posted the Overthinking It gift guide. Uh, longtime listeners will recognize this annual feature on Overthinking It, uh, where we write short essays about things that we like. Uh, that we think you would like and that we think the discerning nerd in your life uh, or discerning pop culture junkie, discerning uh, overthinking it sympathizer. With, I like that as though we were a radical political <laughs> movement, you know, and, and overthinking it sympathizer. Are you now or have you ever been uh, a member of overthinking it or an overthinking it sympathizer? Uh, we think that these are things uh, that you will like. Um, they include uh, copies of the complete uh, DVDs or Blu-rays of the Fast and the Furious series, which which uh, became sadly topical this week, uh, but also many other things, including uh, music and books and uh, at least 
least one kitchen appliance. Uh, two you guys kitchen recommend. You guys recommend great kitchen appliances. Can I just say <laughs> that? You guys are so domestic. Uh, including, I mean, including from me, just an obscenely expensive recommendation, uh, which has become my tradition, and including uh, a coffee maker, which has become a tradition <laughs> on the list. Uh, I, I think Stokes was the first. I actually went back and read all the gift guides. Um, Stokes was the first with a, a French press. Um, and, uh, and then Mark, uh, last year with the, the Aero press, uh, and then, uh, uh, Sheely this year with a cold brew, uh, coffee brewing system. Um, I liked artisanal coffee before it was cool. I'm just saying, but, uh, but mine this year is an, is an immersion circulator for sous vide cooking. How's that for pretentious? So, uh, <laughs> you know, the reason I'm, I'm, you know, humping this piano key, uh, so repeatedly and so hard, this one piano key about the gift guide and what's on it is because these are all Amazon affiliate links and we get a small kickback for uh, uh, actually for anything you buy from Amazon when you click through and enter the site uh, through one of our links and in the same session buy literally anything. We get a couple pennies um, for every dollar you spend there. Uh, and this is a big promotion every year for us. Uh, it, it almost equals the, the, like all the, the, uh, uh, operating costs of the site in, in this month. Goodness knows uh, we're not doing it with display ads because that, that market has crashed in the last, in the last couple of years. So, uh, you know, at the risk of, of humping this piano key too hard, uh, and at the risk of, of too much shameless commercialism, we're, uh, very grateful that um, in in many years people have uh, uh, people have bought all their Christmas gifts through our links, and we know, uh, as I said last year, we know you have a choice of Amazon affiliate links uh, around the holidays or at any time, um, and you can uh, uh, and we appreciate that uh, that you use ours. And if you want to just a link to the homepage, and you'll find one on the, uh, the homepage of overthinkingit.com uh, to the homepage of Amazon. Uh, I'm also- reminded. Um, I'm reminded of the song, you guys. I believe it goes, uh, Amazon affiliation rules everything around me. (laughs) Arm. Get the money, dollar dollar bills, y'all. <laughs> That's how it goes, right? Yes. Yeah. That is it's all about the affiliation, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're gonna. Uh, uh, oh, and by the way, there's still a PayPal link there. If if you you know are if you object to Amazon for some reason and just want to give us uh, cash money. Um, I, I suppose I'd also accept bitcoins. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not really set up for that, but I, you know, if someone has some bitcoins that they want to, uh, gift to overthinking it and, and gift, not donate. We're not a charity. You can't, uh, you can't take our, um, uh, what you give to us off on your taxes. Well, you can try, but that's between you, your accountant and the IRS. Um, but we, I, as always admire your discursive discipline. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we uh, we're very grateful. Uh, we're very grateful for the support and uh, grateful that we have such a dedicated uh, and generous audience every year, and uh, and an indulgent audience because you're going to be hearing the same ask on every uh, every podcast through the new year. So, uh, question of the week, uh, panel. Now that the commercial is over, uh, speaking of a commercial of a different type, it seems that Ron Burgundy, Will Ferrell is Ron Burgundy, has actually done a, uh, uh, a real newscast, appeared on a real newscast in Bismarck, uh, North Dakota. Bismarck's in North Dakota, right? 
Uh, sure. Hearing- yes, it is in North Dakota. <laughs> Jeez, oh, people. God, we, uh, <laughs> you coastal snobs, you. I mute for a second and everyone forgets their state capitals. Come on, folks. <laughs> I, uh, I knew that in the third grade. Like, I had it instantly in the, like, the back of my hand. I knew the state capitals. Um, I knew so many things better before I discovered women. Let me tell you. <laughs> I, I was going to be so, a nuclear physicist. I knew so many things better before I discovered Wikipedia. So uh, as, as a promo for the upcoming uh, Anchorman sequel, uh, Ron Burgundy, the character, appeared on a real-life newscast. So, panel, your question this week is, uh, what fictional character would you like to see appear uh, in – uh, his or her real life job alongside uh, real life workers in that job, just as Ron Burgundy appeared uh, alongside real life newscasters. Uh, first in the alphabet, Pete Fenzel. So I'm going to go out on a limb on this one. Does the name Flynn Carson mean anything to you guys? No, Flynn Carson, uh, probably not, given the, the, the thin, swan-like, graceful arc of the limb that I'm going out on in this one. Uh, so Flynn Carson has his own movie trilogy, made for TV movies, uh, made by uh, Turner Pictures. They've aired, I believe, on the Sci-Fi Network. He's played by the illustrious and formerly TV doctorly Noah Wiley in a series of movies uh, started with... The Librarian? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> There's the librarian quest for the spear, the librarian return to King Solomon's mines, and the librarian curse of the Judas Chalice, uh, which is I think I think that's the darkest of the librarian films, based only on the presence of Judas Chalice in its name. Um, so yes, so so Flynn Carson works in a library as a regular old librarian. I believe it's actually the Metropolitan Library in New York, and uh, what he doesn't realize is that ancient artifacts and relics of tremendous power are stored in this library and when they are absconded with there is no one else who happens to work for the library that can go get them back except for the lowly librarian. So they're, they're sort of like a, a take on Indiana Jones that's a, even more tongue-in-cheek than Indiana Jones and, and uh, uses the uh, takes advantage of the drastic drop in the cost of special effects like post The Mummy Returns in order to pump out some fair to middling entertainment. But I feel like, I feel like the reason I would say this is the idea of Noah Wiley being a librarian it, it, it sounds really interesting to me. Uh, I love the idea of say like, you know, a, a woman being in a library and like noticing a librarian who's like tall and and like kind of good looking and really cute and then sort of like, oh no he's like telling her to shush and is that the guy from ER? No, it can't be. He's just a librarian. And then besides, that show's been off the air for 10 years. He has to have ceased to exist. Uh, but no, he is in fact not blinked out of existence. I just love the idea of him, like, you know, also the idea of him, like, hauling stacks of books, you know, up and downstairs. And also, a library is a place that, uh, I don't know, a lot of homeless people work in. I just feel like Noah Wiley could have a lot of really exciting adventures, and I would like to watch them uh, in the library sciences. So I'm going to go with Flynn Carson, <laughs> the librarian. Got it. It's an excellent choice, Pete. Yeah, well, <laughs> Thanks very much. Well done. Uh, and, and now it's time for our special guest who is elected to be introduced in, uh, who's elected to be introduced in alphabetical order, uh, Hannah Fall. Is a hey. uh, is is here in her capacity as the world's foremost expert on the Fast and the Furious franchise. 
but uh, is sitting in for the whole podcast, and we're glad to have her. Hannah, welcome to the Overthinking Podcast. Welcome back, I should say, to the Overthinking and Podcast. Thank you. It's exciting. Uh, so what fictional character would you like to see uh, p- perform his or her job among real-life counterparts? Um, okay, so my this is a little bit tough for me. First, I was definitely going to go with Sandra Bullock, just being an FBI agent. Not even an undercover one, just like regular FBI agent, you know, <laughs> maybe somewhere in the middle of the country. Bismarck, perhaps. <laughs> Um, but I think at the end, uh, I'm going to go with, I would like to see Robert Redford as a real life horse whisperer. (laughs) I think he would be good at it. I think he has soothing, soothing tones. You know, I could see him really, uh, doing a number on some stallions. (laughs) I thought you were going to say for a second, Robert Redford stranded on a boat in the middle of the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Robert Redford. Stay out there. Oh, chili pepper, chili pepper. Bleep that. It's Sorry. a child. No, no, it's okay. We use we use a Eudora male client system of profanity <laughs> measurement, by the way. So we use chili peppers to measure the uh, the use of bad language in regards to Robert Redford drowning at sea, and specifically. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Robert Redford, Horse Whisperer. Excellent. Did you see I'm... that movie? Did you see the Horse Whisperer? Did... Yes. <laughs> Is it good? <laughs> you know, it's, it's all right. <laughs> For bringing endorsement of yeah, that's not exactly who I was about to say. <laughs> well, I think it's partly too. Have you guys seen the movie Basketball? Have yes. I? <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like I'm I'm sort of like I partly remember the actual movie, The Horse Whisperer, but I mostly remember the scene where Trey Parker uses a an audio book of The Horse Whisperer to put somebody to sleep in the middle of a basketball game. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, as part of a psych out. Um, well, that's uh, uh, excellent, excellent choice, Robert Redford. Uh, a good-looking, good-looking fellow, even into his uh, even into his old age, huh? Indeed. Uh, Mark Lee next in the alphabet. Hey, hey, I would like to see Kevin James as an actual working zookeeper, um, <laughs> which he played in his uh, seminal role in the uh, 2011 film The Zookeeper. Uh, he was a zookeeper in that movie. Um, and here's why I'd like to see Kevin James as a zookeeper. Because uh, recently, uh, over the Thanksgiving break, I visited an aquarium, the Atlanta Aquarium to be specific. Um, and um, when you're in the aquarium and you go to the penguin exhibit, um, if you're lucky, um, and I use a very broad definition of the term lucky here, um, you will see uh, the, the, aquarium, the aquarium keepers, the workers, the zookeepers, for lack of a better word, come out and feed the penguins. And this is a really entertaining thing here, right? Because like they are, they got this big bucket of fish, and they're you know, and they're sort of you know, giving the fish to the penguins, let them nibble a little bit of a time, and then one of them will, uh, one one of the one of the penguins will get the entire big piece of fish and just like stuff it down its gullet, um, and which made me realize like, huh, you know, these uh, workers here, they're actually kind of part of the exhibit. Um, we are here to see them perform for us. They are behind the glass amongst the animals, um, you know, adding to our experience and making all this possible. So I really want to see Kevin James on the other side of this glass, feeding animals, cleaning up after them, like, you know, being pointed at and uh, observed uh, as a beastly creature here for our mere entertainment. Um, I, I just get a lot of pleasure out of this idea that, uh, you know, he kind of uh, he walks around. Sure, he keeps the zoo here and there right you know he feeds the animals um but then every once in a while you know he just kind of uh is himself he he sits down for his lunch break 
He checks his phone for his messages, and we all just all kind of look at him like, "Oh wow, look at the Kevin James and his natural habitat, the zookeeper. This is really great. Wow, what a great trip to the zoo. I like this." <laughs> what about? Than, oh yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, what about Kevin James as a UPS delivery person? I mean, really, when you get down to, it, I want to see Kevin James and like. All of the blue, various blue collar uh, occupations that he takes on in his movies, including mall cop, yes, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. a, a, a public school teacher, cum MMA fighter, um, I don't know, Otis the cow from Barnyard. I have no idea what that is. I'm just the reading off his IMDb pages page. The actual oh. king of queens. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> was he a, a grown-up of some kind? He is yes. like a UPS driver <laughs> and king of queens. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. And actually, having him marry a man. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that movie. That happened. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, we got ringing endorsements left and right. (laughs) (laughs) So far, the librarian is coming out like roses. (laughs) I don't know, Pete, because I'm about to propose uh, the CIA's newest special agent, an 11-year-old named Harriet the Spy. Uh, is, this, is this Spy Kids? No, Harriet, no, Harriet the, the Spy, spy. Is, a, is a novel. Is, it was written, uh, <laughs> Wikipedia tells me, in 1964. I, I didn't know that. I read it when I was a kid. Uh, but it's it's about a girl who who uh, spies on is perhaps too strong a word, but she sort of observes her neighbors and and friends at school and pretends she's a spy and writes down her observations in a notebook and her... Uh, kind of notebook slash journal and, uh, you know, her unadulterated, her uncensored thoughts on them. And uh, when she loses her notebook and they find it, you know, um, uh, terrible, terrible things ensue. Because once once you realize uh, what an 11 year old girl thinks of you, really, how can you go on living anymore um, if she has a bad opinion of you? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I would like to see Harriet the Spy sort of do a halo drop into, you know, I don't know, into current conflict areas where they're gathering human intelligence, uh, right? Like, because there's no, um, there's no one so inconspicuous as, as a tween girl, I think, right? Sort of walking around the, the, the back alleys of Afghanistan or, um, you know, I don't know, in, in any sort of global, global hotspot. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I think she could, she could, uh, uh, do a lot for our country's gathering of human intelligence. Would you send Michelle Trachtenberg, the star of Harriet the Spy, the movie to do this? <laughs> I guess, I guess that's who I'm, who I'm stuck with. I actually, I mean, I had aged out of the demo before the Harriet the Spy movie uh, the Harriet the Spy movie came out, though I I know they had one, but but uh, I don't the, think you were ever in the demo for Harriet <laughs> the Spy, Matt. I, I have a suspicion that demo was gendered, but I mean perhaps perhaps you had you were in the demo. I read, um, I don't know. Yeah, I read a lot of girl books grow, growing up, um, which was and <laughs> then I guess listened to a lot of girl music as a as an adolescent. Uh, but the um, you know and and I say that I that term you know which strikes me as as vaguely offensive because it was introduced to me by by Shane Malofsky, the overthinking it writer who is a uh young adult fiction author and uh and opened my eyes to the fact that there are are boy books and girl books which I knew instinctively but but hadn't quite put that that term on it growing up um 
I don't know. I guess all the Roald Dahl books I read were were boy books, right? Do you think Roald Dahl? Well, no, like- no, no, because boy book and girl book are industry terms for books that are being produced by the publishing industry for young adult in the young adult fiction genre. And Roald Dahl predates all that stuff. I'm pretty sure by like a decades, right? Like, didn't Matilda? Matilda was a long freaking time ago, you know. Well, was it, when, I'm, looking, I'm looking up when it was written. I guess it wasn't that long ago. It was only written in 1988. Wow. Jeez, so maybe I, I think of Matilda as like impossibly old. Like maybe it's that and Gilgamesh, like no, way right. back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> like what? if only they had Matilda when they were fighting the Great Bull of Heaven. Like everything would have gone a lot better, right? <laughs> Although I guess things went okay with the Great Bull of Heaven. I forget what killed Enkidu. Um, if you if you know what killed Enkidu, sign off, sound off in the comments. Let's get that in audience engagement going. Um, it wasn't a, a, a witch that turned him into a mouse, though. Pretty sure that's not what happened. <laughs> no, that's that's a different Roald Dahl book. That's that's uh, a terrifying. Did you see the film of the witches? Speaking of, oh my god, I, I was still in the demo when that came out, and uh, when Angelica (spoiler alert) when Angelica Houston is revealed to be a witch, and you see her actual rubber witch mask instead of the rubber the rubber human mask that apparently goes over the rubber witch mask, it is terrifying, right, Hannah? Yes, super terrifying. And they all do. There's like a hundred witches who all take them off simultaneously. Terrifying. Yeah, that movie, I saw that movie. That movie was scary and creepy. A foolish witch who says I'm wrong will not be with us very long. This is how she punishes. And then she, she uh, what, she turns them into mice, right? Like, um, yeah. whew, man, this is how she keeps order inside her, what, coven? Is it fair to call it a coven? I would say it's fair. It's more of an organization, though. It seemed like that was a national organization of witches. Yeah, like they were in like a convention, like literally a convention, right? Like at a hotel or something. Right. (laughs) It was a tax write-off for all of them. It was a lovely little (laughs) junket. Yes, you file a 1099 or you get a 1099. I keep mixing that up when I tell 1099 jokes, whether you file it or whether you get it from the government. (laughs) Got to work on that, or that self-employment humor ain't gonna wash. What's that? Well, actually, I mean, if it's a non-profit organization, that organization files a nine ninety with the government. Oh, right. Got to get our tax pedantry correct on this podcast. A ten ninety nine, more specifically, a ten ninety nine dash misc is the form that an independent contractor gets from a uh, uh, from their client at the end of the year if they have. uh, build more than what six hundred dollars or something. There's some which I, I feel like mouse turning into is something you could charge more than six hundred dollars for. <laughs> oh, easily monetize- monetizable. <laughs> right. We'll run ads on Facebook. That's how we'll monetize. We, no, how will we turn people into mice? How will we do that? <laughs> if we have a, right, exactly. If we had that power, we wouldn't be leaning so hard on these Amazon affiliate links. Um, so, uh, all right, uh, changing topics, um, to something, changing gears, if you will. Oh, it's, it's almost like, I want to be lighthearted about it, but I don't want to trivialize it by, by seeming to, uh, you know, to, to, to mock it because I'm, I'm very sad that, that in the last day, uh, we got the news that Paul Walker was killed, um, uh, was killed in a car crash in in Valencia, which is a uh, uh, part uh, part of a city in California in the Los Angeles area, north of of Los Angeles on Interstate Five. Um, 
if you if you listen to our exhaustive uh, topographic study of Los Angeles in the Karate Kid episode of the Overthinking It podcast a long, long, long time ago, almost five years ago, uh, you'll you'll know you'll know where that is. Um, so, uh, gosh, that was uh, I mean, gosh, that was that was really sad news, and and it seems sadder for. It seems sadder. I mean, it it was unexpected. Uh, uh, Paul Walker seemed like he was in the prime of his life. Um, you know, he had just started work. I guess they had just started work on the the next uh, Fast and the Furious movie, which is a franchise that that we on Overthinking It like a lot. Um, and and we actually can talk a little bit about why we like it. Uh, so much other other than the fact that it's awesome. I mean, there are some uh, traits that mm-hmm. it has that lend itself particularly well to overthinking it. Um, and and so these all these these things conspired to like a a celebrity media uh, storm around uh, around the tragic circumstances of of his death. And and I mean, we'll leave it to other outlets to, to rehash and, and, um, delve into the, the gory details, uh, we're just sad for his loss and sadder still, I think, because of this kind of this media reaction. I don't, right. I don't know, Pete, it seems like, it seems like there's, there is a, a huge amount of attention being paid to it. And, and some have said an inordinate amount of attention being paid to it. What do you well, think? Well, Pete? Let's, let's before, well, Pete, go ahead. No, jump oh, okay. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there is, thankfully, you know, there, there's the question of, Okay, this guy is a celebrity, right? And we don't necessarily know him personally. Um, he died along with a friend of his, right? Uh, is a guy that we don't generally know, a guy by the name probably uh, Roger Rodas, probably reportedly in the media. Uh, died with him, the guy who was driving the car. Uh, and and but and it's hard to contextualize the death of an individual person who's fairly distantly removed from your immediate life, but who with whom you have like a strong emotional relationship. And it's hard to contextualize understanding the life and death of a person who leaves like lives like a very different sort of life from you. And it's and it's hard to differentiate between the, the the emotional feelings that you have. It's hard to justify and contextualize and get comfortable with the difference in the emotional feelings that you have about people that have died that have done things that have moved you and changed you versus the people that you come across who may still be like totally valid and awesome people but haven't had that effect on you. Thankfully, there is a body of work that can help you understand these things. It's by a guy named Paul Walker, and it's called the Fast and the Furious movies. <laughs> and it is all no, seriously. Like, what? What is it? I've been seeing this stuff on Reddit and on other places, which is like really trivializing, getting like sneering and mean about people who are sad because this man who has affected everybody with his work, you know, or maybe not everybody, but has affected a large number of people with his work. Why are we sad that he died? And it's like, well, it's like you didn't even watch Fast and the Furious 6, which is about this, except it, like, removes the whole actually having died thing and, like, replaces it with, like, amnesia, right? Like, uh, in order to sort of pull the punch, as it were. Um, but, yeah, but it's like, you know, this, this, is the, this is both about, you know, it's about family, right? <laughs> sort of. It's about the concept of people uh, forming associations with other people that mean something to them. So, yeah, so there's, there's both... I just feel find it terribly ironic. And I mean, you can even look at Paul Walker's other work. I mean, I, I know him from The Skulls, of course. You know, he was in that, which is also about kind of alienation and reaching across boundaries and about, you know, the death and, and about, um, you know, war and all these other things. 
Um, and I mean, I haven't necessarily seen like, you know, flags of our fathers, but I'm sure there's a fair amount of death in that as well. But I mean, just he gets cast a lot as the as a sort of golden boy figure uh, who has to confront vast gulfs between people. Right. And so it is perhaps fitting or not fitting because it's not fitting at all. It's, it's chaotic. It's random. It's horrible. But it is perhaps an opportunity, instructive, perhaps, that we ourselves find ourselves on the far side of a gulf with the loss of Paul Walker, a gulf that we want to bridge because of our intuitive sense for his work that has connected with us, those of us who have connected with his work, um, but which is we're sort of cried upon by many and also might feel ourselves like we, we cannot or should not cross uh, because of like a lack of validity of those feelings or something like that. Um, that's my initial reaction. Right. Yeah. Uh, is, I mean, that, is, is the point of Reddit to make you feel bad about things you, you feel instinctually? No, the point of Reddit is to make other people feel bad about the things you feel bad about. <laughs> that way, that, way, uh, <laughs> that yeah. way it makes you, it makes you, um, you don't feel better, but you feel justified in not going to sleep. Um, so that's <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I, I, this is why I wanted to bring Hannah on because while I have developed a fairly recent great fondness for the, the Fast and Furious franchise in general, I feel like whenever something like this happens, I want to talk to somebody who like actually really personally cares and uh and, and also someone who's good at articulating those kinds of feelings i mean hannah what were your thoughts and feelings when you heard this news and and all um, this other stuff so i heard it from you actually on twitter um <laughs> and i was i was really surprised how sad i was um yeah. you know i like i think typically when celebrities die you know you sort of understand that you don't know them you don't feel that loss like you do when you lose a friend or you know an, a loved one. Um, but I felt really sad and I still feel really sad today. And I've been trying to sort of pick apart why that is. Um, and Pete's right. I love the Fast and Furious movies to the point where people were reaching out to me all over the last day as if a family member had died. Like people huh. have been like, I'm thinking of you. And yeah. it did kind of strike me as strange. I was like, but I don't like everybody's reaching out to me as if I've actually lost someone in my life. Um but, you know, the the Fast and Furious movies have been sort of a part of our, you know, sort of culture. And if you are like me and love them very deeply, your life for, you know, over a decade, more than that, what, 15 years since the first one came out? 12 years, um, yeah. 12 years, yeah. yeah so yeah. so they've sort of, you know, been, I don't know, been a, a part of, you know, my sort of emotional landscape um, in that, you know, I think about them a lot. I watch them a lot. Um, but you never think about Paul Walker as being your favorite part of those movies <laughs> yeah. um, because he's the main character. He carries it, right? Um, and, you know, you, your favorite part is usually, you know, some sort of sidekick um, or someone who comes along in the third movie and they make the whole timeline around that person. I don't know. I'm just throwing things out here. <laughs> Uh, Han, of course, for those uninitiated. <laughs> but yeah, of whose of whom you own a shirt of, right? From Indeed. that was yeah, that was like used on set. That was actually in one of the movies. Yeah. So I was watching um, she's all that today, where uh, Paul Walker sort of plays the bad guy. I don't know if you guys have seen she's all that. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, like two or check. three times in the theaters in the late nineties. Yeah. So my have my I? <laughs> 
So I thought everyone had, but my boyfriend was wandering in and out while I was watching this movie, and he was completely blown away because he'd never seen it, I, and he'd seen a lot of the tropes that have kind of come out of it. So he walked in right when they took off her glasses, and they were like, oh. <laughs> um, and he said, he was like, wow, this movie just doesn't have a shred of irony in it, does it? And I was like, no, you know what? It doesn't. And I think that's part of, like, Paul Walker as a performer is none of his performances have irony in them. They just are what they are. He's not, you know, self-deprecating or winking. and He's not sneering. Um, you know, he's just sort of affable, even when he's sort of playing the worst person you've ever seen, like in She's All That. Um, you know, he's just sort of an affable, likable golden boy, as Pete said. Yeah. I mean, the first scene in the first Fast and the Furious movie, uh, maybe it isn't the absolute first scene, I don't quite remember, but there's a scene where Paul Walker just sort of drives a car around inside of a, like a stadium parking lot. Mm-hmm. Right? He's just like in a big parking lot, and he's in this souped-up car, and he's just like shifting it around and spinning it around and driving it back and forth, and he's just having the best time. Mm-hmm. Right? He's just so happy. Right? And, and I mean, I know I talked about this moment in our special Tokyo Drift supplemental to the Fast and the Furious coverage we did earlier this year, Anna, but it's like, that's the quality that Paul Walker brings to this role, that's what he inhabits in this role, that allows him to bridge the gap. Because, I mean, ironically enough, I mean, in She's All That, Paul Walker is like the other, the enemy, right? Like the gulf that Paul Walker creates around himself, which he does because he's like chiseled and handsome with faraway eyes and he's tall and kind of intimidating, right? Like he has a little bit of an edge to him in the sense that he seems threatening a little bit. So he can be both a bad guy and a good guy. But in this movie, he's the one the audience is supposed to identify with who's going into like the strange underground of the LA street racers and the way you're introduced to him is this unabashed totally sincere love of driving cars and driving cars quickly and that that love is what propels him across the gaps not, uh, not driving cars not driving cars quickly right driving cars fast fast yes <laughs> <laughs> no, no no I mean like driving a car for about 35 seconds and then like getting out of that car and proceeding to drive a great many different cars quickly right no, no, no. Dri- driving an individual car at a fast speed for a prolonged period of time sorry sorry yes. I didn't mean to, to poop on your point there no no no, 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 no. Well, it's actually, a good you know no it's a good point and I think that this also feeds into ideas of like what a celebrity is or more particularly like it, we use the word celebrity but Paul Walker is an actor. You know, what an actor is. Like, what is an actor's job? And, I mean, Matt, you probably know this because you're a working actor. Um, capital W, capital A, in trademark. Right. Uh, you know, ASC, CAG, WAG, AFL-CIO, all that other stuff. Um, but, like, his job is to, you know, cru- you know, what, experience the things that his character is experiencing. I mean, you could frame it in any number of ways. But his job is to provide a link between the audience and the story. Right uh, is to provide this figure that serves as this link between the the story that you're trying to communicate, all of its ideas, everything about it that's worth telling, and, and embodying it and communicating it to an audience. Uh, and and if you think about somebody who's an embodiment and a communicator and a connector, you know, like these are fairly intimate things that are being asked of these people and that we experience with these people. Uh, you know, the moments that we share, these fictional moments that these actors make real for us. Yeah, they didn't write the characters, they didn't create the characters, um, but, you know, they, they embody the characters and in joining the experience of watching them, like, we do feel a closeness to them, and I, and I don't think that that's oh, a Oh, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Walter White is, is Brian Cranston, right? It's not like an idea of Vince Gilligan, even though it was that first, right? 
Yeah, and it's also not an idea of like the capitalist industrial media. That's like a huge, huge thing to note, right? Which is that in a way, you know, and you know what I think about the words in a way, it's everything after I say this is false. <laughs> uh, in a way, like Brian, you know, the character of Walter White represents like racial political economy and like the the social structures of the Southwest and the West in general and, you know, the gap between the drug trade and the understanding of law and all this other stuff. But for our experience of him, it is, it is just foully wrong to exclude the personal connection that Brian Cranston makes with us when he's performing the role, right? And Paul Walker, in, in connecting with us, performing his roles, connecting us then with the far more exotic, you know, Dom Toretto's of the world, right? Like, you know, being our bridge in those movies. And it makes sense that he would leave a, a space when he leaves, right? That, that there's been a connection made, and thus when that connection is removed, like, there's a loss. Um, and it's one that we feel real readily because we don't intuit things in a utilitarian manner that we weigh by the relative number and relative, you know, value to society of the people who die, right? And it's not the fact that the that Us Weekly might have put him on the cover a bunch of times if they did. I don't even know if they did, right? I don't like, think they did. No. That's the thing about Paul Walker is that you don't really actually know that much about him as a person, which is, I think, why he actually is more of an actor than he is a celebrity. Yeah. Um, the only thing I know about him, and I was thinking about this today, is when he did an episode of MTV Cribs. Like <laughs> he he shared a house with a bunch of people, and he was showing his house around, and some dude just wanders in. And he was like, "Oh yeah, that's my roommate." <laughs> and this is like when he's famous. Oh yeah, no, he had already made. I think you know this was like post Varsity Blues, post yeah. The Skulls, post Broke Down Palace. Uh, yes. <laughs> he was in Pleasantville, post Meet the Deedles. Uh, oh my god. The wor- with the worst cover art of all time, I think, oh Meet goodness. the Deedles. Is that the one with, is it John Leguizamo? No, who is that in that thing? Is that no, Paul- I don't I don't know who the other guy is, but it's the one where the two of them have, like, a wave as their, like, hat, almost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which, like, doesn't really have anything to do with the movie, which is about them going and being um, park rangers to try to make Old Faithful stop being on fire. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Jeez. To have done only even half the things Paul Walker did in his short and brilliant life. Jeez. <laughs> Dianu. Dianu, right? <laughs> Dianu, to douse the burning of Old Faithful. <laughs> oh, man. Steve Van Van Wormer was the other Deedle. Uh, uh, he, he is known from such things as Soul Calibur Four, where he was the voice of Maxi, um, apparently. And I forget which one was Maxi, um, but I did play Soul Calibur Three, where he's also the voice of Maxi. Um, I'm going to look that up while you guys talk about Paul Walker. So oh, Max, let me, was the Korean guy. No, never. No, he wasn't. He was the nunchuck guy. Never mind. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna take things in a slightly different direction, which is what I was gonna say before I, I ceded the floor to Pete, rightfully so, <laughs> because no, because like the conversation rightfully should start with uh, Paul Walker, the actor, his roles, his movie, the cultural impact that he's had. Um, but I don't know. Maybe this is just like the policy wonk and bureaucrat in me. But um, the death of Paul Walker um, had me thinking about. Um, uh, the issues of, of transportation safety and maybe to, to have this relevant to our pop culture conversation, that of car culture in the United mm-hmm. States. So the two of which are really inextricably linked. Um, so, I mean, the, the, one of the things that I thought about when, when Paul Walker died is like he died in a car crash 
And that's, a, I mean, this is a fairly common thing that happens in the United States. And I don't say this to trivialize his death, like Pete, you were alluding to this about the sort of the, the nasty people on Reddit who want to trivialize this and, and sort of and, and, and pass it off and seem kind of above this, this uh, above this event, right? And sort of, you know, distant, aloof and unaffected from it. I'm not trying to do that. Right, but I'm trying to, uh, and and um and and when we talked about earlier about trying to contextualize this event, um, I'm I'm doing this in sort of in a, in a in a bit of a cold and calculated way. I do admit, but it is one that um I don't know works for me because I am a heartless bureaucrat at, at heart. Mm-hmm. Um, think about that irony, right? Okay, so um so Paul Worker died in this car crash, and uh, as they say in the news, speed was a factor in this thing. You could say that he was the some that the driver of this vehicle was driving too fast, perhaps also too furiously. I mean Yep, you gotta say it. Yeah, I gotta say hashtag it. too soon, hashtag too sad. Had, yeah, both both of those things, exactly. Yeah. Um but to, uh, to put this in the context of uh of another big thing that happened this week weekend, which is also tragic, is that four people died in a train derailment um in uh, north of New York City. Uh, on a train line that I I have gone up and down many times, I, I, the bend there is a beautiful part of the Hudson River, and uh, it's sort of one of the highlights of the of the ride and points north of New York City. Um, but thinking about all this, so let's, let's I want to give you some numbers here. Okay, um, in 2010, the most recent year that the National Safety Council um, has set statistics for uh, for accidents or for deaths occurred by m- means of travel. Um, there were 0.5 deaths per 100 million passenger miles due to uh, automobiles, um, light-duty vehicles, passenger cars, light trucks, vans, and SUVs. For buses, that number is 0.05. For trains, 0.02. In 2010, no one died um, in air travel. And I'm not sure what the geographic reach of this is, but for the sake of the argument, let's say that end number is zero. Um, another number to think about is... Um, uh, long-term data shows that on a per-passenger mile basis, Americans are more than 70 times likely to die driving a car than they are in a plane crash. Um, and uh, I put these numbers out here because, um, again, not to uh, be cold and calculating about this, but to think about the car culture that we have that is reinforced by pop culture, right, that... Um, you know that uh, that really influences us as, by and large, a nation of drivers, as people who treat driving as a as a both as a as a daily exercise, as a mundane thing, um, but also something that is really you know sexed up and and exciting that we see in the movies, right? But at the same time, we also treat with this really disproportional sense of risk. Right, that uh, that you know, people venture out on on the roads with little sense of, of fear or danger, um, but at the same time, um, you know, there's sort of a an outsized fear of flying, which or or you know, or like this uh, this train derailment gets an outside sense of news attention when the reality of it is that those are those two modes of transportation are far and away more, much more safer. Oh, right, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, right. And there there's a book. Um, it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's by Daniel. Calaman, let me let me look up the the uh, the reference. But it, it, one of the points of it is that people are not statistically minded, right? Like that it it belongs to this sort of body of sort of behavioral economics and the the sort of neurological basis of and and not neurological basis of behavior in like the Malcolm Gladwellian TED Talkian, you know, uh, uh, heavily watered down sense. But this guy's a primary researcher in the in the field and. Um, uh, 
Yeah, and and that we don't we don't think statistically, and and when we know statistics, they don't tend to affect our behavior. Well, a lot of people just misunderstand statistics. Like I work in in video games, and uh, it is very true that when players, when you tell something that something will happen fifty percent of the time, they do it two times and assume that it will happen one of those two times. <laughs> They're like, but fifty percent. That's so, I did it twice, it should have happened one of those times. Um, so, you know, they sort of fundamentally don't understand how statistics work. Yeah, well, when, yeah. I, when I get two heads in a row, I, I think it's a miracle and I buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> yeah. So let, let, me, let me offer a slight counterexample to this way of framing the, the um, discussion of relative dangers of transportation. Kahneman, I mean, what is, what? not Kellerman, Daniel Kahneman. Sorry, please oh, okay. go on. No, no. So, I mean, Paul Walker is one of them. But another one is that, I mean, maybe this is an experience that most of you shared. uh, But when I was in high school, there seemed like every couple years there was a crash that killed a student or a bunch of students. Right. Like there would be somebody who was drunk driving or there was somebody who just got in an accident. Um, There was, you know, a a person from my office who died in a car accident um, a a bunch of years ago. And it was a very, very sad time Uh, for the people in my town. When that car crash happened that killed those children in the school, it was the biggest thing that had ever happened ever. It was a huge deal, right? It was like the whole – it was the cover of the local newspapers. It was what everybody was talking about. You know, there were, there were displays out in public on the street. You know, there are streets being named after people. There are scholarships that are being raised. It affects the speech that happens at graduation in front of everybody in the town. Um, there is no question that that one car death, you know, meant more to the people than – you know, however many people died on trains, buses, and airplanes that year put together. So I don't think it's just about car people being willfully blind to the dangers of cars. But of course, they are willfully blind. We have to be willfully blind to the dangers of cars or we wouldn't be able to drive them. And we don't very well have the option of not driving cars, certainly not just by force of will. It's not the kind of thing you can just say, wake up one morning. I mean, I don't drive a car. I don't have a car. But it's not the kind of thing where everybody in the country can just spontaneously be like, let's all walk to the bus and see what happens. Right? <laughs> like, let's just do it today. Let's just make it no drive day and not drive. And then let's, let's hope that someone picks us up. Right? Like, you can't just do that. Um, but I, I I do think it has more to do with being able to comprehend individuals and just our limited capacity. There's a huge, there's a huge uh, like push in the what I guess I'll refer to it as the sort of meme space, right? Like the crud that you get forwarded all the time on the social medias, but just in the culture in general to extend empathy to like the absolute group of all humans. Right, this idea that we should be more empathetic, and I think I've talked about it on the podcast before, this idea that we need to be more empathetic. Now, I agree. We, we could extend more empathy to more people. But past a certain point, you know, the function of empathy is to differentiate which people we care about because we can't comprehend. It's just too many people, right? And so I would say that it's not that we feel that car crashes don't matter. It's that large, yeah, large numbers of people we can't comprehend don't matter. Like if we can't – like all deaths remind us of our death is another factor of this, right? Like part of why deaths make us sad is because if it's a loss of ourselves that we're scared of and also the loss of the people who are very, very dear to us. And the closer the story comes to affecting that, like the sadder and scarier it can get. And as much as it seems like a big train is different from a person or maybe like our experience of driving a car is more familiar to us than the experience of driving a train, um, one train is a lot more like us than a million cars, right? 
And I think that's that's part of what we get down to. I mean, the other side of it is that you know we can we need to separate why Paul Walker died in a car crash versus why people in general die in car crashes, right? And like my I mean my guess would be that Paul Walker died in a car crash because he was in a car with a race car driver who was his friend, and the race car driver misappropriated different styles of driving that are used in different environments, and he used it in the wrong environment, right? Like, which is a problem we have with guns, where we have these things where we create special spaces where you sign away your rights to not get injured in order to participate in these activities, and it's great and it's fine, but if you take it out of those spaces, then it causes a big problem. But that's not really the problem with cars. I don't think people are being killed in tons of traffic accidents because everybody is street racing. I don't think that's really the problem. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I just vented again. I am very verklempt at the – I have a lot of like, like, re, like retained that I'm expelling right now around the grief over Paul Walker. Uh, but did any of that strike a chord with anybody? I mean I think part of it is – could you imagine really like if, if every day when you get in a car – because people spend you know hours every day in a car. You really thought about sort of the actual risk you were taking and the danger your life was in. You'd live your life in fear. You'd be scared all the time. Well, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And it doesn't even stop at cars, right? Like if you actually considered, you know, I don't know, all the all the buses, right, that are barreling down mm-hmm. the street that you're crossing or all the, you know, all the ways and, and all the, the uh, uh, terrible pollutants in the air and all the terrible terrible chemicals in the food and all that, you know, that, that, the, the, the existential position, right? Like the way of being in the world that we have, uh, at, in, in the postmodern world has got to be one of near constant, uh, denial, right? Yeah. So my family was talking a lot about jetpacks over Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, I'm not being hyperbolic. We talked about jetpacks a lot. Um, and one of the things that somebody said that I think like is basically what we've been talking about is somebody was like, well, I mean, can you imagine if everybody had jetpacks, you would be, there would be crashes all of the time. And everybody's like, yeah, I know it would be, it would be crazy. Ugh, people would just be running into each other. And then somebody was like, you mean like what it's like with cars? And everybody kind of stopped and was like, oh, yeah, right. Um, But it's a lot easier to sort of think that like, oh, in the future with this technology that we don't have, then it'll sort of be dystopian and people will be dying all the time with this sort of like mode of transportation that we don't have. Um, But it's not quite as fun to think about the fact that that's just the life we live. I mean, one way to think about it, if you want to, I mean, just to get back to what Mark brought up and the relative dangers of modes of transportation, it's worth noting that the the safer the mode of transportation, there is, I can I can presume a, a correlation, which of course I have no evidence to back up, uh, but a correlation between the barrier to entry for the driver and operators. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. And not only that, but the compensation. Right, so like people who drive cars are paid the least and have the least qualifications and the least barrier to entry of people who command motor vehicles, except for bikes and motorcycles. Right, like even then, I mean, I think a motor is a motorcycle even less than a car to get a no. motorcycle. No, it's more. I than think a car. it's more. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I have a motorcycle license, and I can tell you that it is that barriers to entry that are significantly higher. So yes, yeah. so I guess the motorcycle. Jeff, what did you have to do in New York? In, in California, I didn't have to take the safety class, but I did when I got my my M1. Oh, uh, it's it's really not go- worth going into the details for, but um, it mostly involves like getting to the license place um, with a motorcycle that you can take a test on. <laughs> because yeah, you gotta have someone drive you out there, and like everybody drives a car, but nobody drives a motorcycle. Right, right, so, right. Yeah. 
Well, so I, I guess if you were to make the curve between like barrier to entry for drivers and risk of death, uh, the motorcycle would be a huge outlier and a terrible risk, right? Like, because it's the one for which it's the only one for which a higher barrier to entry doesn't result in like a safer experience. And, and yet, Pete, and, um, and as someone who's been hit by a car on a motorcycle, I say this: I, I feel awesome. You know, uh, I, both fa- <laughs> when, I, when I'm riding, I feel awesome. Oh, yeah. You know the risk you're taking. Do you still ride a motorcycle? Uh, yes, I, I did. Yeah, I, uh, as soon as it was repaired after I got back on it. <laughs> Man. So, so, I mean, I guess the, the motorcycle is, is kind of foils my discussion there. But I guess the point is that, like, if you need to run a... Uh, trans- I would be curious to see what would happen to the figures of fatalities on buses if the barriers to entry for bus drivers were lessened. Like, for example, you know, up here in Boston, we recently shut down the fun. I didn't do it personally. I, you know, it, was, it wasn't like an elite crew of special agents <laughs> that I was part of. But we shut down the, the fun was, buses. Was Harriet oh, yeah. was Harriet yeah, yeah, the, the spy Chinatown on buses. the uh, was Harriet the spy on the crew, the elite crew? Michelle Trachtenberg was dressed up like a Chinatown bus driver and infiltrated for us. <laughs> it was Harriet the spy ghost protocol. The Secretary disavowed all knowledge. Um, but no, but we found out that, that the Chinatown buses were driving with broken axles and broken frames and no inspections, and that the drivers were driving like, you know, 20 hour shifts with no brakes uh, or brakes, like either, spell it any way you want, right? Like, and it just wasn't happening. Um, and it's like, we shut it down. And that's like, and people were like, why did you do that? That's awful. You're awful. You're cronyistic. Now, there was perhaps some cronyism. I'm not saying there's no cronyism involved, but. Uh, I mean, if if you're willing to let people just drive whatever they want, more of them are going to die because people are going to drive nonsense, right? So I would wonder how, whether the fatalities in buses would converge with the fatalities in cars if you were driving. I mean, you have to look at figures of like rickshaws in Thailand and whatnot, or if, rather it's just like the number of people in the vehicle means that like the person sitting in the back is safer, right? Like, is that is that the case? So like the person in the back of the bus is not really at risk, Um Oh, there was that bus where the whole chop of the bus got torn off and everybody got decapitated. That happened a couple of years ago, right? Like it was a China, was it a mega bus? I think that was driving down to New York City, and they were no, no, it wasn't. It was this company that drove out of Alewife, which is sketchy as f. And that's why you yeah. never, that's why you you never sit on the top level of a mega bus, right? Right, right. But but like, no, I mean, whatever. I don't think it was like that. I don't think it was a double decker mega bus. But I mean, I don't know. To bring it back to Paul Walker for a second, it's like, you know you got to live your life a quarter mile at a time, you know, exactly. and that's a, that's, a, that's a saying that has meaning, right? And the meaning is that if you are a character like Vin Diesel who looks out at the world, or like, like Dom Toretto, who looks out at the world and sees nothing but, like, nothing but doom, right, just like a lack of opportunity, a bunch of people who want to either dethrone you or hurt you or put you in jail or put you in, like, psychiatric facilities, if you, if you see nothing but enemies and have no real hope, like, if you comprehend all the things that are out to get you and all the forces that are out to, like, belittle you and make you less you're not going to be able to actualize yourself in your life in any meaningful way, right? Like, we're talking about the existential condition. Like, this is the existential condition of being fast and furious. This is the furious part of it. I mean, not the furious part as in, like, Furious 6, right, where it's like a, you know, SEAL Team action movie kind of thing, where the fury is from the punching. But it's like the the furious of the fast and furious at the beginning, which is the fury of displaced youth, Right, like this is the fury of looking out in the world and not seeing any friendly faces, and how do you cope? Right, you know, and 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 in this case, it's like you find you build a little family around yourself to protect yourself. You make art, 
right? Like you, you perform in ritual social bonding things. You establish a choreography of respect. Like you, you build structures and institutions around yourself and the people that are near you yep. um, to, like, to, to, to somehow find something that you can comprehend. You also get in your car and you drive. Right. Well, that's what because, it was. Yeah. Because, yeah, because driving is an important part of self actual is is self actualization in car culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That is a good point. So, yeah. So, I mean, this is sort of. Um, and I definitely where, where remember. Going. I mean, don't you remember being sixteen and getting your driver's license and and like yeah, just getting absolutely. in and, and and going and suddenly that sense of of independence was like yeah. uh, I I had an experience and then I I talked to and I thought it was just me and my particular craziness but then I talked to other people who did the same thing like. Uh, uh, I I was in the car by myself, you know, for one of the first times after I got my license, and I just like yelled at the top of my lungs, <laughs> d- d- you know, just an inarticulate, you know, uh, yell out to the to the interior of my car, and uh, right, like, and and then a friend uh, a friend told me that they had done the same the same thing and that was uh you know right like you you couldn't do that before you can't do that when your mom is driving you around you can't yell right you can't yeah, you can't do that on the bus <laughs> right okay all right okay so well, i'm gonna play let's i'm gonna put a thought experiment out there that sort of ties all these different things together um transportation safety paul walker's death cult, car culture movies and all these sorts of things all right let's imagine this future where our solution to this problem that you know driving in like very poorly trained individuals driving in individual cars is a dangerous thing our solution to that is self-driving cars right this is not actually that crazy of a thing like i mean people are talking about this and the technology is real and exists um self-driving cars in, th- in 50 years self-driving cars are where nobody like you know sort of like, getting behind the wheel of your own car uh, and driving yourself is a very rare thing, right? That rite of passage you talked about when you're 16 and you get behind the wheel and you, you know, just yell and you imagine yourself being fast and furious and, you know, being, you know, in, in those sort of car movies, that's not part of culture anymore. What happens to car culture and, like, and, you know, and it's the place in movies? Like, will, what, is it possible to have a movie like the Fast and the Furious or any of the Fast and Furious movies in this uh, scenario that I just described. I mean, what about, there are still horse movies, right? Like you can still do a movie about like riding a horse really fast and there's still places you can go to ride a horse, right? Um, I, I mean, I guess, I guess although the question then, the, the question then rises, well, are horse movies an extension of car culture? I mean, that would be an huh. interesting study to make, would be to look at a movie like, I mean, I guess War Horse, right, or whatever. I guess, <laughs> look at, like, I mean, I, whenever I say horse movie, I always want to follow it with Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. Which no, I was the, thinking more of a Star Trek Generations, actually. That's a horse movie. Mm, that's a horse movie. That is a horse movie. <laughs> that's, a, that's a never mind movie. So. I mean, <laughs> Pete, I don't want to know but you, but No, no, I, go for it. Um, I think car movies and car culture is, is about sort of um, control and, you know, like you, you know, you are in control of this 2000 pound, you know, beast made of metal. Right. Um, but it's also about sort of the individual, you know, all of the cars um, are specifically tailored both like under the hood and um, cosmetically um, to that particular person. Right. And that's like a big deal. Um, but there's also this idea that like the way that a car is tuned is attuned to the way a person drives, right? Um, And that, like, you can tune a car 
that shows that you're a better driver than someone else. You're like, oh, I don't need nitrous because that is below me. Um, <laughs> so, so if it's a self-driving car, you kind of lose that. You know, you can paint it, you can make it look like the Hulk, you can do all these things. But if there's no sort of machismo behind it, you know, you can't just be like, I sit the best in this. Um, I sit very well. I put my feet up on the dashboard like a boss. Um, so I, I don't see sort of a car... A, a car culture, but I think that car culture in itself, like it'll just be something else. It'll be plane culture or boat culture. If we become water world or something. Yeah, I do. I do think that people in general, um, as an, as a, as a result of the segmentation of our view of the people around us by the sort of, uh, automatic and chosen, uh, filterings of social media uh that we overestimate the technological sophistication of the of the people around us uh so i'm like i wanted to look something up i wanted to have some sort of figure to back this up with so um oh this is okay so 80 percent so it says that uh, there's a study so i'm looking at media bistro talking about how 80 percent of 18 to 44 year olds uh have their smartphone with them all the time i wonder whether that means oh no okay 49 percent of the u.s population uses a smartphone by 2017 the percentage of smartphone users is expected to reach 68 percent right so that's four years from now we're talking about a situation where there's still going to be a third of people who don't use a smartphone or don't even have a smartphone right so uh and this is also sort of like the cash economy the classic example of this is the cash economy right where like for years for decades people have been saying the cash is on the way out and we're going to be paying for everything with credit right and it's like well we might be paying for everything with credit but we're not everybody like we went to college you know like like you know or whatever you know and not college isn't the deciding factor but it's like you know the it's easy to assume that everybody's life is like us but like i don't know i'm just thinking about that one time a couple years ago where I had to move on September 1st and I didn't reserve my U-Haul truck in time. So I had to like take a train an hour and a half south to pick up a U-Haul from a car shop, like on the side of a random highway way down in uh, near South shore kind of place. Um, and, uh, and it was just like this strip of abandoned, not abandoned. They were still people at them, but car mechanics, car shops. And one of them had a big banner that was advertising their new, their like Juno.com email address. Like I kid you not. And this was two years ago. And they had a Juno.com email <laughs> address. And there's people there still fixing old cars. So I think one of the factors is that we, the United States of America is not as developed a country as we think it is. There are a lot of people in the United States of America who are not on board with new technologies. And there will probably be a large number of people in the United States of America who will continue to drive non-self-driving cars because self-driving cars will probably be expensive at least at first and they require not only do they require constant maintenance but they require they will probably require maintenance by a central corporation or body of corporations because you have to have integrated api for the mapping right like you can't use like the navigation that they put in cars now that you buy is so bad relative to what you get on like Google Maps, right? When you get like the CD that gets updated and you're supposed to bring it back to the dealership so that they can upload a new CD into your navigation system and it costs like $1,500. And you have to, you're supposed to do this because you don't have GPS and you don't have a signal everywhere that you drive. So it's supposed to guide you everywhere you drive, but it misses streets. It doesn't know where things are. You know, like, I mean, I went, when I went canvassing for Obama in 2008, you know, disclosure, you know, I have certain political leanings. I was in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and we found entire housing developments on streets that didn't exist on our maps, right? And so the question is, if there's a critical mass of these sort of off-the-grid people, then there will be – then basically the road system will have to still accommodate 
cars that people drive themselves. Even if self-driving cars become the norm, it's, it seems unlikely that we will develop roads that will dominate everywhere that will only allow self-driving cars. Um, and that's what that whole rant was about. Pete, um, does that rant also apply to jetpacks? <laughs> One thing I was always curious about is in like in the Fifth Element or in the Jetsons or in any other work of great prophecy and foresight, um, how do they designate where the lanes are in the sky? Do they have different methods for doing that? Why does everyone? How does everyone stay in a, in a straight lane um, when they're driving in like the three dimensions? Uh, just there- to, just to, to take a page from Charlie in the Great Glass Elevator, the answer is sky hooks. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, maybe they'll have other rites of passage. I don't know. Maybe car culture is a teen for teens is car culture related to sexuality. Is there some other extension of sexuality they could use as a proxy? Um, or is the goal just to, to figure out some way of like hitting that mole on the head enough times that it finally doesn't pop up anymore? Because that seems like a fool's errand. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, what what else can sort of be like, I mean, because cars aren't phallic, but they they sort of have that, um, you know, extension of, of you. Um, and if it's, you know, a sexual extension of you, then it's, you know, I don't know. You're, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> well, I mean, a self-driven car can still have a back seat. No, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a phallus to be like a, a sort of sexually realizing object. Right, like you know, there's the, we don't have to be Freudian about this necessarily. Like there can be other yeah. shapes, but maybe <laughs> maybe we should be. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, what are you saying? Like, what other phallic objects people have? Like, do you think baseball is going to get really popular when self-driving cars become a thing? <laughs> like, just giant, just like just like vulva-shaped, like vulva volvos, just like round yonic cars that satisfy none of our urges for penetrative self-actualization. Yeah, maybe we'll become sort of a more matriarchal culture with self-driving cars, and cars will be an extension of the vagina instead of. <laughs> I was thinking more just like you know you re-enter the womb when you go into a self-driving car. Exactly. What I want to know is if we're all going to be in self-driving cars, what's the point of us all being in individual cars anymore? Right? Like it's it just seems like terribly if you're going to develop a central system that's going to route all the traffic, at some point you're going to want to have self-driving buses rather than self-driving cars or something that's going to work better than everybody having their own 2000 pound piece of metal. Well, no, I mean, because... the the driver this is the uh, lack of population density. That uh, makes bus transportation make sense. You know, you take 10 people to one place and then they can walk. Yeah. All, all those 10 people can then walk to where they need to go, right? Like the individual right. private dri- uh, self-driving car takes everybody to, directly to their destination because population destiny is low and houses are spread far apart. I mean, right. I think the, the ultimate vision has to be, you know, no, no more car ownership, right? Like uh, the, the car is just this sort of fungible resource that, that pulls up when you need it. And then it's sort of like self-driving Uber, right? Like uh, it just pulls up when you need it and then disappears. And you don't have to think about it when it's uh, when it's not needed anymore. I mean, then we also, but then we run into if you're just a renter, right? And of course people would love that. You just pay, pay a fee forever. Right. And that's the idea. But you know, neighborhoods where people own property do tend to have better stuff going on than neighborhoods where everybody only rents. Um, and like, so the idea that right. if, your, if, your point is you've never taken a, uh, you've never taken a, a squeegee or a, a washcloth and wiped out the backseat of a rented car, right? 
Not unless something <laughs> terribly unexpected is taking place. <laughs> not a, yeah, not unless some Pulp Fiction level S has gone down, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, yeah. um, I think I think that maybe we we, we ought to leave our conversation there uh, for the week. We're we're very sad for the passing of of Paul Walker, and hope that that we've. Come out and, and we don't give a damn what they say about it on Reddit. We're sad about it. Um, yeah, and yeah. we we hope uh, that you know honoring it in in our way is some small commemoration of of the man's work and and uh, how it's how it's touched us and provided us with a great deal of of happiness and and uh, and of pleasure. Um, so uh, the, the streets of heaven are, are too crowded with angels tonight, and they're they're doing 120 miles an hour, and and yeah. uh, you know I don't know fish tailing around around the curves, um, hitting the nose. Uh, yeah. God, God just got a 10 second car. <laughs> yep. So, uh, all right, we'll be back uh, next week. You, if you want to uh, join the conversation, you can email podcastoverthinking.com or call 203-285-6401 or leave a comment on the show notes for this episode. Thank you for doing your holiday shopping through our affiliate links. And there will be one uh, on the show notes for this episode for uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, the book. Um, and you know what? I'm just going to throw the complete Fast and Furious uh, series on there, which is Pete's pick in the gift guide, because uh, it, you know if you haven't seen it, you you really owe it to yourself to to look at these movies. Um, they are they are perfect movies for overthinking it. Um, Except the second one. Well, maybe, yeah. <laughs> Except you know the second one is I think Paul Walker's best movie, best of the six. So, ooh, that's provocative. As a, as a perfor- as a performance, you mean not as a yes. right, not the film as a document of of something profound about sociology and and no, uh, no, American no, no, culture, no. yeah. Or, or no, the, he, yeah, he seems to be having the most fun in two. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you can, you can get one of those if you want to have a, a personal, uh, film festival. But what I mean about them being great overthinking in movies is that they have, they have manifest virtues. Um, their virtues have almost nothing to do with what's advertised. Uh, and you have to pay attention. You actually have to pay attention to them to, to puzzle out, uh, what the, what the virtues are and they're missed by, by a lot of, a lot of viewers, I, I think. So, um, anyway, uh, we'll be back next week with more overthinking it podcast. Until then you can visit us on the web for this and more, uh, at overthinking it.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve. Paul Walker has a whole documentary about the mating habits of great white sharks. When you say he has. So, uh, so he was, before he was an actor, I guess he at least did some time studying marine biology. So he did a National Geographic special where he like tagged along with a bunch of marine biologists tagging great white sharks. Um, and then he did, I guess, a cameo on one of the specials for this year's Shark Week called Spawn of Jaws, um, <laughs> which has like a super fear baiting name, but actually is just about great white shark mating. Um, I think that one's about territories, like where they mate. Um, and he has like just sort of a cameo where he talks about the research they're doing.